From the banks of the Colorado River in Lake Mead to the homes and businesses in Southern Nevada, welcome to Water Smarts, the podcast pumping from the heart of Las Vegas, where we engage with the experts who keep the water flowing throughout Southern Nevada. I'm Bronson Mack. And I'm Crystal Zelke. From how we treat it, deliver it, use it, protect it, and conserve it, the Water Smarts podcast is all about water in Southern Nevada. We hope to make you a little smarter about the one thing that keeps us all connected, water. Hey, Crystal, how are you today? I'm doing good. I'm scrolling through this list of plants, and I don't even know if anybody says scrolling anymore. That sounds I feel like I'm dating myself right now. But how funny! It's okay, Crystal. I still surf the web. It's you all surf right. The web? You okay, scroll. Good. I still surf the web. We're good. The World Wide Web. Yeah, I'm looking at this regional plant list that the SNWA has recently published on its website. And, you know, just kind of preparing for our conversation today where we're going to be talking about trees and climate change and how we're having to adapt and make some changes here in the valley because it is going to get hotter. And some of the trees that we've been planting in landscapes may not do as well as the years go by here. So the SNWA is doing some research and trying to help residents and landscapers choose the right trees for our climate here in the desert. That makes a lot of sense. Obviously, you got to choose the right tree for the climate. You also have to choose the right tree for the function. I don't know about you. I have palm trees in my backyard, and they are the worst. They provide no shade at all. They just drop palm fronds and little seeds all over the place. Look, I think they're beautiful to look at. They make you feel a little Southern California, but being an owner of palm trees, they are a pain in the neck. I really wish I had a couple of mesquite trees that also provided a little bit of shade because those palm trees don't provide any shade at all. But to talk a little bit more about trees in our desert environment and what we can expect going forward, we are going to be joined on the Water Smarts podcast with Doug Bennett, conservation manager for the Southern Nevada Water Authority. Doug is not only an expert in the best ways to save water and conserve water, but Doug is also a horticulturist. You could even call him a tree enthusiast. He knows about plants, he knows about trees, and he's going to talk to us a little bit about what we can do in our community to make sure that we have trees today, tomorrow, and well into the future, even as our climate gets hotter and drier. Doug Bennett, welcome back to the Water Smarts Podcast. Hey, Bronson and Crystal. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are really glad to have you here, Doug. We've heard a lot about trees. You know, there's been some studies that have come out. We've seen some recent news stories about trees. And, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about water conservation. And obviously, that is really important for us as we live here in the Mojave Desert, have a limited amount of water supply. And, well, we've also seen water levels in Lake Mead declining because we've been in a drought for more than two decades. So drought and water conservation, always a big topic for us here at the Water Smarts podcast. But what people may not know is that as it gets a little hotter and drier here, as we begin to really feel the effects of climate change, trees are going to be really important for us going forward. And before we talk about trees, Doug, can you just help our listeners understand a little bit about how a hotter and drier climate here in Southern Nevada might affect us? Yeah, well, certainly as Las Vegans, we all know it's hot, right? Every Southern Nevada knows what we have to endure for about three and a half to four months every year. 
But the terrifying thing is that it's going to get even warmer still. And we have two forces that are pushing against that. We have climate change, just changes in the overall climate patterns. And we also have the urban heat island effect. An urban heat island is nothing new. It happens in every urban environment. It happens at different scales. As cities get bigger, urban heat island becomes more of a challenge. But that's the heat that's being accumulated by surfaces like walls and sidewalks and rooftops and asphalt and vehicles. Our air conditioners, right? They're cooling us inside our building while they're heating the great outdoors because the air they're discharging is hotter than the ambient air. So urban heat islands pushing on us, climate change is pushing on us, and that same climate change impact is also pushing against our water supply in the Colorado River. We're expecting, uh, based on analysis of, of some of the climate reports coming out for our region, that we're going to see a temperature increase of three to five degrees Fahrenheit by mid-century, so over the coming 30 years or so. And we expect that we'll have more than 100 days per year that are over 100 degrees. Right now, we're typically between 80 and 90 days where the temperature reaches more than 100 degrees. Uh, that's expected to go well over 100 days, and it has the potential by mid-century to reach as many as 130 days. So we're looking at a 30 to 50-day increase in the existing number of triple-digit days that we'll experience here. We usually see that those triple digits hit about mid-June, and then we see them stick around until about the first week in September. But we're going to see those 100-degree days come on earlier and stay much later in the coming decades. I mean, I guess if you really think about it, we've got drought and climate change affecting our water resources. We see that with the declining water levels in Lake Mead. We've got shortages that are coming up next year where we're going to have less water available for us. Again, further emphasizing the need for water conservation. And you know, you're also indicating here that we're going to see more days above 100 degrees going forward. And I think that just might put the question in some people's minds as to, well, doesn't that mean then that plants and trees are just going to need more water to survive going forward? Are we kind of compounding the issue here? So, Doug, can you just help our listeners understand, like, do we need plants and trees even though they're going to be using our water supply going forward? Oh, I think they're vital to the urban environment. And I don't mean just for the shade and the cooling, but I feel like it's important that we share the desert with some of the animals that live with us. Right now, I'm looking out a window. I've got birds that I can see. Birds require insects, seeds. We're providing some habitat there. We're providing quality of life. I don't think anybody really wants to live in a habitat that's devoid of plant life. And that's the reason we bring these plants in. What we do have the opportunity to do, Bronson, is to choose different plants. So there are a lot of plants that can give us these benefits that are better suited to our urban environment, better suited to our desert climate, and are going to be better suited in the long term to these warming temperatures that we're going to experience. So Doug, the Water Authority recently completed a study of the most frequently used plants by people participating in the SNWA's Water Smart Landscapes rebate program. And for those who might not know, the Water Authority offers customers a cash incentive when they replace grass with water smart landscaping. And in the end, that saves about 55 gallons of water per square foot of grass that's converted to drip irrigated plants and trees. To qualify for the rebate, the property owners have to include trees and plants in their new landscapes. And we don't really just encourage rocks and a palm tree, what some people might think makes up a desert landscape. As you explained, we need vegetation to combat the urban heat island. 
So tell us about the study and what your team found from that research. I think the, the interesting thing, Crystal, is that these hundred plants make up the vast majority of all the vegetation in the Las Vegas Valley. So we already have some challenges with diversity in plant material. Everybody in this town could tell you what a lantana looks like. Everybody's seen one, touched one, knows exactly how to identify them on site. We use that plant a lot, right? Most people know what an Afghan pine tree looks like. They're all over town. You get into certain age developments, they're the most commonly used street tree. So you start realizing that, man, out of all the plants I see in this valley, the vast majority of them are probably in that top 100. So we wanted to evaluate what risk is there of using these same top 100 plants? What is the risk of potential die-off of some of these plants? And how might we begin to prepare for that, particularly in terms of plants that have very long lifespans? I mean, if your lantana dies, it's not a crisis, right? But if your 35-year-old shade tree dies, that's a huge impact to the landscape. And collectively, if you were to lose a lot of those trees, it would have a huge impact on the city. So we wanted to know how at risk were the plants that we were commonly using in this area. We put a lot of focus on trees, but we did look at the entirety of the top 100 most commonly used plants. We found that some of them are already operating outside of their heat zones. Common ones like hawthorn. Hawthorn's a little shrub, Indian hawthorn with small pink flowers on it. People may not recognize that description because most often they see a kind of faded yellow shrub with some burnt leaves on it and some dead twigs <laughs> that don't befit that description because it's not a plant that's real happy in this environment. And it seems to be getting less and less happy as we move along. So we're seeing uh, every kind of plant, be it shrubs, ground covers, trees, some of the smaller annuals that we might use, we run the risk that some of those plants won't be available to us. On the other hand, the bright side of this is that there are some plants that we previously couldn't use because it might be too cold here, or it may be too cold in the winter, or they would freeze to death. So we may also have some plants moving into our plant palette on the other side that Southern Nevadans were not previously using because they would die every winter. So in trying to figure out which plants would be subjected to negative heat impacts, Crystal, what we did was we went to the American Horticultural Society. And the American Horticultural Society characterizes plants by the number of days that they can tolerate that are over 86 degrees. So while we're really focused on 100 degree days, because that's a meaningful threshold for us as humans, they found that 86 degrees Fahrenheit was an important threshold for plant survival. And they characterized that, and we found that some of these plants are already operating outside of what the American Horticultural Society expected their heat tolerance to be. And that tells us two things. That tells us that we can have success with some of these plants, but it also says that some of these plants may be very close to their margins, right? We can't guarantee that the plants on this list are not going to be able to endure but all the data says, based on where they come from, where they thrive, that they're unlikely to be able to thrive under an increasingly heated environment. A good example of that, one that I guarantee every listener can go out and find today, is the purple leaf plum. The purple leaf plum is already living three heat tolerance zones outside of where it should be able to thrive. And it shows. I'm not saying you won't find a purple leaf plum that looks awesome, but it's probably growing in a microclimate, a very unique set of conditions that allow it to thrive. 
for the most part, we put purple leaf plums in and we grow them for a few years and then we watch them slowly degrade and die. And people will tell you, not the purple leaf plum, that's, that's one of our most popular trees. You know why it's so popular? Because we have to plant the same tree every three and a half years because they just keep dying. And they're a beautiful tree. We don't have a lot of great substitutes for that, that color pop in the landscape, but they're not a tree for the long haul. They're just simply going to succumb to heat and other environmental conditions and eventually die in a short period of time. Well, so the purple leaf plum, one of those trees, probably not going to fare real well into the future and is already struggling today. You referenced the Afghan pine, and we do see those pine trees all over town. If you're in the Spring Valley area, certainly you see the pine tree uh, very prevalent throughout the community. I guess with this information, Doug, how should we use it? How should the, should the community put this information that we now have about trees to use? How do we expand our tree canopy? How do we protect it? What do we need to be doing? Well, one of the things we need to look at is succession, right? So we're not going to go out and replace trees because we think they might die in the future. What we need to do is gradually choose different trees every time we go plant a new one. And we not only want more diversity, but we want to make better selections. So we should be choosing plants that we think are likely to endure the coming conditions. We want trees that are going to live for decades and decades, not just a handful of years. And one of the things that we did was we updated the regional plant list. So the regional plant list has been around for about a decade, and it lists more than 500 plants that can be found around the valley. But not every plant on that list is well-suited to the Las Vegas Valley. And the reason they're on the list is because people may find them in a store or nursery. So they have to be on the list so a person can look them up and go, oh, this doesn't look like a good choice, right? We don't control what comes into the valley and what's sold, but we can educate people about it. What we did was we revised that list with a focus on trees, and we took the trees that are, for many reasons, be they environmental conditions, pest problems, poor acclimation to our soil conditions, heavy water users, things that are not well suited to this environment, we actually updated that list. And instead of showing you that tree's characteristics, it simply says not recommended. We just don't think you should plant that tree in this environment anymore. And what you will find is a new star rating in that plant list. And we've rated those trees that were two stars or above. We provide you all the information. And obviously, a four-star tree, just like a four-star hotel, is going to be an excellent choice. It's going to do really well here. But anything that was rated below two stars, we just simply marked it as not recommended. It may be for lack of heat tolerance thirsty. It's way too thirsty for our water conditions. Doesn't like our soils, burns in the hot spring winds, whatever it may be. I want to say, Bronson and Crystal, that one of the things I consider to be a waste of water is applying a lot of water for several years, trying to get a plant up and going only to watch it die. And especially where that's a woody plant, like a tree or a large shrub. I consider that a waste because we put all that water on it and we essentially had nothing but something to put out in the rubbish, right? It is important that we invest our water in the right kinds of plants and plants that are going to give us a lot of enjoyment, perhaps not only for our duration of stay in the, in the Las Vegas Valley, but also for the generations that come behind us. 
Become a plant master and save when you apply for the Southern Nevada Water Authority's Water Smart Landscapes Rebate Program. You'll not only save money on your monthly water bill, but the SNWA will give you a cash rebate of $3 per square foot of grass replaced with Water Smart Landscaping. The program has saved our community billions of gallons of water by upgrading nearly 200 million square feet of lawn. Now that's plantastic. Get rid of the grass and make the switch today. For more details, visit snwa.com. SNWA is a not-for-profit water agency. Well, and I imagine that residents and maybe even developers would appreciate this information too, because trees are an investment. It costs some money to, if you're re-landscaping your yard and you don't want to have to dig out a tree after three or four years, that's frustrating to have to keep going back to the nursery to buy more trees. And like you said, adding more water to it because that's usually what people do. If they think their tree's suffering, they just add more water. And so I imagine that knowing the updated list and having a better understanding of what trees will do better here will be better for our residents. Doug, this updated plant list is helpful so that in 10, 20, and even 30 years from now, we won't have a large part of our urban forest dying off. Mature trees help us fight the impacts of the urban heat island. And if we lost a lot of them at the same time because of future temperatures, that could further increase temperatures here in the Las Vegas Valley. So what's your advice to people with existing landscapes that may include some of these trees that we're no longer recommending? Well, you're obviously going to keep them, but if you have room in your yard to do succession, that means succession simply means that you're going to plant a young tree now with the expectation that that tree will become mature enough to start providing shade when the other one starts to decline. So let's take an HOA, for example. Maybe your HOA has 100 pine trees up and down the street. When one of those trees needs to be replaced, don't just put another tree of the same species in there. Go out and start purposefully planting a complementary tree that you think has more longevity in our region. So succession. I call it the bird dog theory, right? I have this bird dog that knows how to hunt and uh, he's kind of getting on in years like I am. And if I want to have a bird dog five years from now, then I probably need to go get a puppy. And I need both the skilled dog and the very young dog to overlap so that one can help teach the other what to do. You're going to take that same approach with the plants in your landscape. We need urban tree succession so that we can move into a different type of plantings and a different urban canopy than the one that may be at risk. I think that's great advice, Doug. I got just kind of an off-the-wall question. You may or may not know the answer to it, but why do we have so many pine trees in Southern Nevada? It was one of the things I always noticed as a kid is, man, there's a lot of pine trees here, but I always have associated those with higher elevations. Do you have any thoughts as to why we have so many pine trees? Sure. You know, the Afghan pine actually comes from Afghanistan. It is the same latitude. And these pine trees are native to the higher elevations of Afghanistan. There are some fabulous mountains in Afghanistan. And the way you can bring them to the desert floor is they're reasonably well adapted to drought, but we put water on them. So they get more rainfall at the high elevations, and that's why they don't occur naturally in the Afghanistan desert floor. But we bring them here because they're kind of adapted. We have similar climates. And then if we can make up for that rainfall with irrigation, they're able to survive. And many, many of our plants are that way. They may come from higher elevations, higher rainfall areas, and we're just going to make up for that artificially. The other reason we have so many of certain kinds of plants is they're easy to propagate. Bronson, I'm sure you've been to the nursery. 
and you're looking for a new tree or shrub to go in and you're like, hey, wow, check these out. These are really great, honey. This is, uh, you know, it's $60. And then they go, oh, what about this? And you go, wow, that's $600, right? <laughs> and you're like, what's the difference? Why is that $600? They're in the same size pot, you know? What's the deal? Well, the $600 plant is harder to propagate it took more years to bring it to market. It's harder to get the seed to sprout or harder to graft it. There's something about its availability that makes it more scarce and difficult to bring into the market. And that's why you can go get a lantana for three bucks, right? And then other plants, maybe 30 bucks in the same size container. It's just how easy is it for the nursery industry to bring those to market? I wanted to point out, Crystal was talking earlier about investing a lot of effort in a plant just to watch it die and throwing water at it while it dies. One of the other things that we look at and one of the causes of climate change is carbon, right? Carbon being pumped into the atmosphere. A tree that comes from the nursery needs to grow and thrive for at least seven years just to recover its own carbon footprint from nursery production and shipping. So if it doesn't live for at least seven years, a healthy lifespan, it's going to have a carbon footprint that's going to contribute to climate change rather than help abate it. So we want to choose plants that are going to get decades down the road if we can. That's a really interesting fact. You don't really think about the fact that bringing nursery plants to market would have a carbon footprint, but that carbon footprint could be offset by having that plant in your landscape for an extended period of time, seven years, as you've indicated to us. Really interesting stuff there. I guess, Doug, kind of rule of thumb here as we were talking about those pines, the Afghan pines, and you talked about being able to bring those down to the desert floor and irrigate them. If it is green and it is growing here in Southern Nevada and it's not a creosote bush or a mesquite tree, it is being irrigated and it is being irrigated by our drinking water supply. And that's why we need to make smart choices about the types of plants that we are irrigating with our water supply. And we are encouraging flowering plants and trees, those drip irrigated plants, as opposed to the spray irrigation that we see on grass much larger water savings there going with the drip irrigated trees and plants. Doug, every once in a while, we get a question from a listener and we have one today. I know that you're not prepared for this one, but what do you think? You uh, interested in taking a listener question? Sure. Give it a shot. All right. This one comes from Valerie. She is a little bit concerned about the fact that she's seen grass replaced throughout the community. She's not a big fan of just the decorative rocks that you see out there. And Valerie's question is, hey, instead of replacing grass, why don't you just reduce the number of days and the amount of time that people can use their sprinklers? Well, Valerie, already we're counting on both those strategies. We're counting on people to replace grass where it's not being used because grass in this climate is getting 10 feet of water applied to it. And when you convert to these other plantings, these more drought tolerant desert adapted plantings, we're only going to use 25% as much water. And I agree with you. I don't want to see just a bunch of ugly, desolate rock. And that's why it's important that people use ground covers, shrubs, trees, a non-turf landscape can be as attractive or more attractive than any lawn in this valley if it's properly done. So we try to encourage people to use the plant material, use the right plant material, make it green, make it attractive, make it colorful. If the lawn truly serves a purpose, we've got to have 
not only the watering restrictions to conserve, but we also have to give people enough capability to keep that surface in good condition. If kids are going to play on it, we need it to be a lawn that can be healthy if we're going to have a lawn at all. And we're having a challenge right now. Not everybody already follows those restrictions. So simply making them tighter is probably going to discourage people from wanting to comply with them. So we kind of have a need for both. You'll see a lot of enforcement on the current watering restrictions in the valley. Uh, We want them to be reasonable enough to keep things alive. Strengthening the watering restrictions may not allow people to uh, keep functional turf grass in good condition. And we want them to look around. If the turf grass serves no function whatsoever, we can get a 75% reduction in water use by simply putting different plants there. Wow, Doug. So when you just said grass uses the equivalent of 10 feet of water, what you're saying there is that a plot of grass in southern Nevada here in the Mojave Desert requires the equivalent of 10 feet of water be applied to it in a single year, correct? Uh, Well, in some respects, yes, Bronson. That's what we found people are putting on their grass. So 10 10 feet of water is a swimming pool with a diving board on it. I mean, that's as high as an NBA basketball hoop. So a considerable amount of water goes on grass. And then for like drip irrigated trees and flowering plants, it's closer to what, like two and a half, three feet of water? Yeah, it's about, well, actually it's 17 to 20 inches depending on the plant material. So you're looking at at a small fraction of it. That 10 feet of water, by coincidence, that's the rainfall in the Amazon rainforest. (laughs) And meanwhile, how much rain do we get here a year in Southern Nevada? Well, I got to tell you, this year, we're at 1.6 inches (laughs) so far, right? So our wet season is coming up, but we're we're more than two inches behind. We're two and a half inches behind what we consider normal. So there it is. I mean, really making smart choices about the types of landscape that we have helps to reduce the amount of water that we consume. Those flowering plants and those trees, those trees provide shade. Those flowering plants help the pollinators and the bees and the hummingbirds. Uh, So there's some good benefit here going from grass to water smart landscaping. Let me fire one more question at you, Doug. This comes from uh, another listener. Brandy wants to know whether or not the seasonal watering restrictions include drip irrigation or is that just for sprinkler irrigation? So just let's talk a little bit about how the watering restrictions right now going to winter one day a week, what does that really apply to? Well, it, it applies to both. I'd recommend that you follow your watering days, whether you're drip irrigating or turf irrigating. However, I do want to point out, I'm not going to run my drip system every time I would run a turf system. And I don't have any turf at my house. But the, uh, the turf grass needs to be irrigated much more frequently because it's only got a few inches of roots on it, and it's very thirsty. So let's say, for example, you're in a season where they allocate three days a week to you, and your days are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You might irrigate your turf on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, but you might only choose one of those days to run your drip system you're going to apply water deeper in the soil so those plants can draw from it more slowly. And generally speaking, and this is just a rule of thumb, there are a lot of variables in this, your drip system might run just one third as often as your lawn might get watered. That's a kind of a good rule of thumb. And that can be applied even with the watering restrictions. So Doug, of all the trees that you and your team have studied, 
Which trees that are no longer recommended by the SNWA will you miss the most seeing here in the Las Vegas Valley? Wow, you know, I, I think there's missing the visual impact of a certain plant. And then there's that hollow feeling of knowing that your environment has changed so radically that something that you knew for decades and decades and decades to be part of your community can no longer be there. So whether, you know, I'm not a fan of purple leaf plum because I just don't do well here, but it's a little bit like watching species go extinct to some extent. You know, when I was a little kid growing up, I used to see an awful lot of horned lizards and you just rarely ever see them anymore. And it's that same kind of, I guess, hollow emptiness that something that used to be is is no more. So I'd have to say all of them, Crystal. Well, Doug, I'll just contribute to that. And I will say, I am not going to miss the pine trees. Being a pool man for five years, having to fish out the pine needles out of swimming pools. I think every pool owner in Southern Nevada is going to say so long pine tree and not have a whole lot of hurt feelings for missing the pine tree. However, you did say we will see other plant species and tree species that will be able to adapt to the hotter and drier climate be good options for us here in Southern Nevada. So we'll look forward to making that migration in our tree canopy. Remember, trees are important. Shade is important. If you haven't planted a tree in a little while, find a place where you can plant a tree, create some shade at your property so that you can become more resilient. And don't forget when you're out there irrigating that lawn, don't irrigate it for more than 12 minutes. We only need 12 minutes. Break that up into a couple different run times, but no more than 12 minutes and give those plants plants and those trees, a good drink of water for a good 30 minutes to an hour, depending on your drip emitters. So with that, Doug, thank you so much for joining us here on the Water Smarts podcast, making us a little bit smarter about trees. Do you have a good time with us? Always a pleasure. Always love the energy. The Water Smarts podcast is brought to you by the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which reminds you to follow the mandatory seasonal watering restrictions. You can find your assigned watering days on snwa.com. The watering seasons change four times a year. Look, we get it. You're busy. And maybe you forgot to change your irrigation clock. But following the seasonal watering restrictions is one of the most important ways you can help conserve water and protect our limited water supply. And SNWA can help remind you when it's time to change your sprinkler clock. Text the word CONSERVE to 85357. That's CONSERVE to 85357. And when the seasons change, you'll receive a text message reminding you to change your sprinkler clock. In fact, pull out your mobile device now and text CONSERVE to 85357. The text reminders help you avoid water waste fines by letting you know when it's time to change your clock and water only on your assigned days. Not sure what those days are? Go to snwa.com to type in your address and get your watering schedule. Well, right on, Crystal. Another great episode. Always good to talk to Doug, isn't it? Doug has the best stories and he has the best way of breaking down everything just to make everything so much more understandable. And I don't know, everything about, you know, what we talked about today is so interesting to me. I'm curious if my my favorite tree is on that list. I didn't get a chance to find out for sure, but I love the flowering pear tree. 
which is the one it starts out in the spring. It has white blooms and then it turns kind of pink and then it gets dark. I think like burgundy color. I love that one. I hope that's not on the list. It's funny because that is a tree. Once I see that thing bloom, that's when I'm like, oh yeah, it's going to start getting warmer now. I'm like, ah, that's a good, it's a good visual indicator that we're seeing the seasons change. You know, and what Doug does here with Southern Nevada Water Authority in managing the Water Smart Landscape rebate program is he really is out there trying to encourage people to make that change from the grass landscape over to the drip irrigated trees and shrubs. And, you know, I'll just say this. One thing that that Doug always points out is the value that trees bring to our community really is shade. And the shade is so beneficial, especially in the middle of summer. And Doug always points out, like, if you're given the option to go sit on the grass in the middle of the hot sun or go stand under the shaded tree, even if you're standing on rocks, which one of those two do you generally prefer in the summer? And everybody says, well, yeah, the shade. So it really just points out the value that shade has over the grass and the water that gets used in the grass. So really good to hear from Doug, really good to learn about the importance of trees and just the fact that our community is going to go through a little bit of change here in our tree canopy. So get out there, plant some trees. It'll do us a world of good. Well, that's it for this episode of Water Smarts. We hope that you subscribe and listen next time. Feel free to send us a question if you got them. You can email that to us at watersmarts at snwa.com or go to the snwa.com website and find us on the Contact Us page. We'll make sure to get back to you with an answer. We might even read your question on the air. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again here on Water Smarts.